There should be ramifications to being part of the greatest failure in U.S. men's national team history. So I want to see a new generation of U.S. men's national team player that understands the failure of the past and says, not on my watch, but isn't burdened or bridled to that past. There should be a changing the guard to a new generation that will make up the heart, the soul, and the leaders of the 2022 team. And that group has to take ownership. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about how the U.S. men's national team should look going forward. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mr. Mossy, how are you this week? I am good. You've bullied me into wearing a jersey again. I felt this one was apropos. What are you wearing for the people that can't see you? I'm wearing a Brazil national team jersey. Celebrating the, uh, the, the victory over the uh, U.S. men's national team? We were just off the air just now uh, reminiscing about some of your games against Brazil. Uh, you faced them a lot in your day, but they were pretty competitive score lines at least. A lot of, lot of one We never got blown out. Um, and you won the one in we, 98. We Gold won Cup, the one yeah. in 98. But there was a time through the 90s where we were playing them once a year and in competitive environments. You know, Copa America is obviously the World Cups, Gold Cups, and stuff like that. So we have a long uh, history of playing Brazil. Not a long history of beating Brazil, but a long history of playing Brazil. Whose uh, jersey are you wearing? No player, but this was from the 98 uh, World Cup in France, uh, which ended with a resounding 3-0 defeat to the hosts. Uh, but yeah, you'll notice only four stars. So this was pre-2002. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Brazil in the, in the show today and, and so much more, as we said. All right. Ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And it goes something like this. As the U.S. men's national team turns a dark page and starts a new cycle with an eye to 2022, this should not be a resurrection. This should be a reinvention. There should be ramifications to being part of the greatest failure in U.S. men's national team history. This is an inflection point. And yes, to a certain extent, I want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, or at least parts of the baby. But this isn't punitive. This is realistic. The core of the previous team, Bradley, Dempsey, Howard, Altidore, Cameron, Johnson, Zuzi, Bedoya, Nagby, Ream, Gonzalez, Beasler, they'll all be well into their 30s when the next World Cup rolls around. Right now, are there better options? Well, maybe not in some cases. But over the next four years, there could be if given the chance. So I want to see a new generation of U.S. men's national team player that understands the failure of the past and says, not on my watch, but isn't burdened or bridled to that past. Of course, you will have younger holdover players that will continue like Pulisic and Yedlin and Brooks, but they were never part of the veteran core of that team anyway. There should be a changing the guard to a new generation that will make up the heart, the soul, and the leaders of the 2022 team but you gotta foster an environment that enables this new group to emerge. And that group has to take ownership of the team, recognize and embrace the responsibility, but more importantly, the opportunity that they're being given. Now this accelerated turnover in no way diminishes the accomplishments of the outgoing players or lessens our gratitude for their service or negates for some their legendary status. It just means their time has come and gone. Yes, the goodbye may come sooner than some wanted or expected, but then again, maybe that's the price for failure and reinvention. All right, David, uh, that is my State of the Union for this week. Thoughts, comments, suggestions? What do you got for me? Yeah, I mostly agree. I think certainly until you hire a new coach, uh, there's no debate. Playing the kids is the only thing that's giving these friendlies right now any value. I mean, the U.S. lined up all these high-profile opponents, Brazil, Colombia, England, Italy. These would be incredibly useful games if they came with a coach in place and in the flow of the cycle. Instead, they're being frankly kind of wasted right now, except for the fact that I think it's a good experience for these young players to be on the field against that level of competition. And it's not about results right now. You're not reading anything into tactics or style of play until you have a coach. So all you're doing is evaluating individual players, and I'd rather evaluate the younger guys. I don't need to evaluate Michael Bradley or Josie Altidore right now. Now, when a new coach comes in, uh, then we'll see, because as a national team coach, you're sort of operating on, a, on two tracks, the present and the future. You're building towards the next World Cup, but you do want to win some games along the way. 
And so you can have a mostly young team, but maybe sprinkle in a veteran or two at a spot where you don't feel good about the young player you have. So you maybe need a veteran to kind of bridge that gap until uh, somebody emerges. So there could be some mitigating circumstances, but I mostly agree that the, the, the path forward here is with a, with a young team. All right, a couple of things. The value that is placed on veteran uh, experience, I think oftentimes is overstated uh, and overvalued, number one. Number two, I would agree with you with regards to the coach. Uh, and we're going to talk more about the coach later on in the podcast. But uh, with this caveat, yes, a new coach could come in and have completely different ideas. But because they created a GM position that we know Ernie Stewart has now filled, the way I look at that position is that is the vision. Your GM, your technical director, whatever you want to call this position, provides the vision and then goes and finds the person that he or she believes is going to implement that vision on a day-to-day basis on the field in terms of the coaching. So... In a, in, in a certain way, I'm not really that bothered anymore by the fact that there's no coach because really everything should be emanating from Ernie Stewart. Now, maybe there's a completely different philosophy on how this, uh, this GM position is going to work. We had Ernie Stewart on our set before the game in, uh, in New Jersey, before the uh, U.S.-Brazil game, and he didn't give a whole lot away about, because I asked him point blank, what is your actual job? But the way I see it, that's the job is to create this vision, and then you get somebody that you think is best to implement that vision. If somebody comes in and has completely different ideas about how the team should work than Ernie Stewart, I think that's a problem, and I think that that's a bad hire. I might not agree with it, but ultimately, the only person that has to have a working relationship and understanding and value that person uh, that they're that they're hiring is Ernie Stewart. In order for that to in order for that to work, and does, that also doesn't mean that you you disagree. When it comes to the actual players and the, the, the crux of my, uh, of my State of the Union here, is there anybody that I mentioned that you would want or need to see or believe needs to continue on? So, for example, some of these are, are, are no-brainers. You know, when you're talking about some of the, uh, the older players are going to be well into their, their years. We know Dem- Clint Dempsey is retired, so he's obviously not going to be involved. Tim Howard, uh, those types of players. But I think it really comes down to a lot of people talking about the likes of Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, uh, maybe a Darlington Nagby. Uh, involved in this. As I said, all of these are, guys are going to be in their 30s, either mid-30s, some of their late 30s. So from an age perspective, we all know the prime is traditionally is looked at as about 28. Is there anybody there that you think should continue on? Well, I think first you give the young players a chance to emerge. But as you get into the cycle, if there's a position where you just don't think the young talent is developing and they're not going to be good enough, then, you know, I'd say up front, maybe you do bring a Josie back into the mix if you feel like it's looking like even at that advanced age, he's still going to be your best option for 2022. But I agree with you. The jumping off point is hoping that young players emerge and show you enough that you don't have to go that route. But, you know, you might have to if, if depending on how things unfold. As I mentioned, some of these players are legendary in status and that will not change. However, if there comes a point here over the next couple of years in the cycle where what, what you're suggesting happens... You think that the American soccer nation is up in arms right now about the direction that we're going and the problems that we have? If after a couple of years with this experience, we come to the conclusion that none of these players uh, are even remotely capable of taking up that baton and, and going forward, then, you know, to quote Taylor Twelman, what are we doing? Right. Then we have a real big problem. I, I, I go back to the fact that I believe that not only can they uh, can they take this up and this team can be reinvented reinvented with these types of players, but while in the moment you could certainly bring in a Michael Bradley and he would be better than put player X, I don't know whatever player player X is, but given a run of games, given some experience, and given over the next couple of years, and given Gold Cup next summer. Given the Olympic team, where I think it's really, it's something very, very important that the U.S. Soccer Federation has to concentrate on. I know there's challenges when it comes to releasing players, but I really think the core of that 22 team is going to come from the Olympic team, and we got to qualify for the Olympics. If all of that happens, I think you can have players that are not only as good as some of these players here, but ultimately end up being even better. And that's, that's why you do it. The other part is, and I recognize, and I said in my State of the Union, there is an element that that I want a clean slate, that I want to clean house after what happened this summer. And does it still hurt and does it still sting and does it still get me angry? Yes, and I'm not alone. I, I, I come across people still at this moment that are irate about the fact that we couldn't figure out a way to qualify for the World Cup. Then there's others that say, eh, it was one of those days. The soccer gods didn't smile on us. Had we qualified, it would have just covered up some of the problems that we have, all, all the different stuff uh, that happened. But I do think that 
a national team and representing your national team, and I can only speak for representing the United States, it always came with a sense of responsibility. And all I've heard over the last year is that we don't have enough of that understanding of what the responsibility is and an accountability. Well, the ultimate accountability is a recognition that, you know what? On your watch, you were part of the biggest failure in U.S. men's national team history. And you could probably say the biggest failure in the United States Soccer Federation's history. Should there be ramifications for that? Well, if we're talking about responsibility and we're talking about accountability, then you're damn right there should be repercussions. But once again, it gets to that uh, baby out with the bathwater thing. Are we saying you failed and we're throwing out potential players that could help down the line or not? I think that from an immediate standpoint, it might hurt you. But ultimately, I think the message that it sends will 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 provide benefits, but I really think that giving the opportunity to a whole new generation to take a hold of that responsibility and recognize that responsibility and say, hey, guess what? We can look like kings simply first by qualifying for the World Cup and then doing well in a World Cup. I think that only comes with a clean slate. No, that makes sense. I mean, certainly if you finish a cycle on a good note, there's going to be more of a sentiment of let's have some continuity here. If you finish a cycle with a huge failure, it's going to be we need to rebuild. Now, not not to harken back to the election, but you say there needs to be accountability. Was electing a guy like Carlos Cordero who worked under Sunil Gulati, is that enough accountability from a federation standpoint? Well, it depends. If you think that it's just more of the same or if you think that it uh, the way I think it's I think that Carlos Cordero and Sunil Gladi, knowing both of them, they are very, very different people, all right? Do they come from the same world? Yes, serving together as, as uh, president of the federation, as vice president of the federation. Yes, do they have an understanding of what they want to do? But I think as people, they're very, very different. As leaders, they're very, very different. So I don't lump them together in the way that others do. It do it, but that also doesn't mean that there's going to be seismic type of change that goes on right now. Carlos Cordero, so far... He can he can rest on the 2026 World Cup, but that only lasts so long. And eventually you're going to have to live up to some of the promises you made and provide some of that change that you can actually articulate and point to so we can see specific changes that are happening. So far, at least outwardly, the optics are, are, are not, well, they're not, not great. They're just, they're just non-existent right now in terms of any of that change uh, that has happened. Now, to get back on the field, Michael Bradley's a guy that I'm not really pining for because I really like the talent the U.S. have in that midfield area with uh, Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney. Uh, we should talk about the Brazil game. I mean, sure. did did anybody stand out to you? I mean, th those are two players that I thought had moments. I mean, w w you know, it was a tough game to analyze, I know. Yeah, but... it, was, it was a weird game. We were there. Um, it, was, it was almost as if the, the, the Brazilian team was in second gear, and they probably <laughs> were for, to a certain extent. So you, you ended up losing to Brazil. No shame in that. But ultimately... Mossy, this is about winning the World Cup. And it's not about qualifying for the World Cup. We said before, that should never, qualifying for the World Cup is not an accomplishment. It's not something to be celebrated, okay? It's an expectation, notwithstanding what happened over the summer, which is why it was such an epic fail. But ultimately, we want to compete against the great teams in the world. And Brazil is one of the great teams in the world. And there were moments that were, that were fun. But in, in totality, I think, I think we lacked team speed. I think we lacked team strength. I think they bullied us. And it's one thing when you get beat by a team from a tactical and technical standpoint that's just better than you. Okay. It's another thing when you get pushed around. At the very least from a US perspective, we shouldn't get outworked. We shouldn't we shouldn't be slower and we shouldn't get pushed around. You know, you might push the ball around on this stuff like but you can't push it around. And I thought that, that was I thought that was problematic going forward. Um, we still don't have a, a true goal score with all respect to uh, Bobby Wood right now. Is, some, is one going to come along? I know a lot of people are looking at Josh Sargent, who's possibly getting a run here coming up. Uh, we'll see. But that's certainly further on, further on down the line. But all in all, once again, you, you played some players that I think in this moment will have benefited from that 90 minutes. Was it an ooh and ah type of performance from anybody, any one individual or collectively? No, not at all. But while it might not be remembered, it might be a really important learning moment and growing moment for some of these, uh, some of these players. I will, I will finish it with this. And, uh, you know, I, I make my living giving my opinion. And oftentimes I argue with people and, and debate things with people. Uh, I also argue and debate with myself. And so I think back to 1998 when, speaking of epic fails, I was part of a U.S. men's national team that finished last in the World Cup in 98. 
to my everlasting shame. I never played again for the national team. However, there were players that were involved in that team that then went on to finish the best the U.S. team has ever finished in a World Cup, men's team has ever finished in a World Cup in, in uh, 2002. So while in that moment we could have said, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater and started new, Bruce Arena didn't do that, brought back some of those players who were scarred, but I think they also recognized they had an opportunity to set things right. Now, also to be fair, they were a lot, more, they were a lot younger in terms of some of those players that came through, but they did play a part going forward. So I can argue against myself when it comes to this, and there's certainly some historic things that we can point to that says, you be careful about wiping that slate clean. I don't know what Ernie Stewart's going to do. I don't know what whoever he appoints is going to uh, do going forward. Dave Sarakin, we had, we had a talk with him, and it's, he's in a really difficult situation right now. I think he's doing the best that he possibly can. Look, I'm not crying for Dave Sarakin because he's a coach of a national team right now, and he's coached for over a year uh, and gotten that as part of his resume. I think he will come out of it smelling just, uh, just fine, although I don't think he... I don't think he thinks that he is in the running, Not that, and I don't think anybody thinks that he's in the running for a coach. So still no coach. It came and went from a uh, U.S.-Brazil uh, standpoint. I don't think we learned a whole lot, but it gave some guys experience. I will be in Nashville for the U.S.-Mexico game, which will be very interesting, especially since Mexico lost uh, and got thumped by Uruguay 4-1. to So, And anytime you get to play against Mexico, it's a wonderful opportunity. Once again, see some of these young players who will be on the field and put them into an environment against our arch rival. Uh, that will be a good thing. All right, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case, uh, that moment in the podcast where my good friend David Mossy uh, talks about something that is eating him up inside, neither a good or bad way. Mossy, what are you talking about this week? Uh, I am going to make the case for less international soccer. The UEFA Nations League kicked off this past week. This is something UEFA devised to replace meaningless friendlies with competitive matches. For people that don't know, they've taken the 55 countries in UEFA, divided them into different tiers based on their coefficient. And then within those tiers, they've divided them into different groups. In the top tier, the teams that win those groups will then play in semifinals and final to determine the UEFA Nations League champion. And the incentive in the lower tiers is that it's a pathway to Euro 2020. They've incorporated this into the qualifying process for that competition. UEFA officials are very proud of themselves, and the media reaction, as far as I can tell, has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I'm going to push back against that a little bit. What bothers me is that everybody operates from the premise that we have to play some sort of international match right now. So better this than friendlies. What about none of the above? What about if we just cut down on the international dates? What about if we don't make players right now have to juggle club and country? What about if we don't disrupt the club season right as it's gaining momentum? I'm not pining for international soccer right now. We just had a World Cup. The next one isn't until four years from now. I really struggled to get into these games. The fact that they were competitive matches didn't resonate with me at all. Now, I didn't have a dog in the fight, so if Europeans want to hit me up on Twitter and tell me that I'm an idiot, fine, but I'm in club mode right now. I would have much rather watched Liverpool or Barcelona or Real Madrid or Bayern Munich play uh, this past weekend. And, you know, if you cut down on these international dates, uh, you could probably finish the club season sooner and give players more of an offseason. I'm somebody that thinks the calendar is ridiculously oversaturated right now. There's too many games, not enough time off for players. So I'm all about uh, subtracting rather than adding or replacing. So I'm not as enamored with this UEFA Nations League as everybody else. Uh, I do want to get into the global implications of it because I think they're massive. But before we go on, I want to give you a chance to react to that. All right, a couple of things. Uh, number one, I don't think you should limit yourself as to who is calling you an idiot just to Europeans. Uh, so if you feel like calling Mossy an idiot and you're out there and you're not European, have at it, okay? Don't think that you are uh, not allowed to do that, uh, number one. Number two, Mossy, uh, did you enjoy the World Cup this summer? The Men's World Cup uh, that we just were involved with in Russia. I did very much so. You did. Uh, would it be safe to say that if the quality of play on the field was hurt uh, or less than uh, to be uh, less than what it was this summer, that that would have hurt your experience, your viewing experience? Correct. Correct. So you're arguing for less games, all right? While some games, uh, I will I will admit, at times look meaningless. There is already a limited amount of time from an international perspective for, for playing for a national team that, uh, that coaches get with the teams and that teams get to play, right? You're arguing to have less time on the field, to have some sort of cohesion, to have some sort of system, some sort of understanding how to play. And 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that wouldn't that make uh, a World Cup or a summer type of tournament be even more winging it than it already is? Well, maybe I am an idiot. No, uh, you're not. I'm, no. Just, I'm just asking uh, you. No, but I think that would be offset by players being fresher, I think. Uh, at times, international tournaments, the quality has been hurt by by players uh, having this uh, incredible grind of a season. Because the other thing with having these international dates is then you have to squeeze in all these mid midweek rounds and things to make up for it. And then players have virtually no break between the end of the season and the start of said international tournament. So I agree with you. There'd be some issue in that regard of having less time to train, but I think it would be offset by the... the so uh, the, the, the two carrots, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and I know there's a lot of people out there right now that uh, are either, either turning the podcast off or at least scratching their head a little bit, well, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but so educate me here. The, the carrot at the end for these four tiers that, that, that exist right now is the winners of the four tiers, they qualify for what? What do they qualify for? Well, no, the top tier, I mean, this is an actual competition with right. a final and a trophy. And so in the top tier, you're, you're fighting for that. And, and, uh, and like but that I said, doesn't qualify you for anything, does it? No. Other than being the champion of this team. No. So my my, my uh, the, point is that if, if there's not a, so when, uh, so for example, when MLS made the Supporters Shield winner or, or U.S. Soccer made uh, the Lamar Hunt Open Cup winner qualify for CONCACAF Champions League, that was important. That was good because there was something at the end to be fighting for. When it comes to this, I remember when uh, MLS, again, tried to create a tournament called uh, Superliga many, many years ago. And it really didn't have, nobody knew what people were fighting for. And at the end, what you got other than standing on a podium with some confetti and, and, and a trophy. So ultimately, if I'm watching it, I, it has to be a means to the, to the end, okay, of, in this instance, when a national team is playing. What, what are they playing for? The other thing is, and this is, gets into the, the more global type of picture you mentioned, uh, FIFA possibly looking to do this from a global perspective, wouldn't that just compete with something that we already have? And we were joking earlier about them sitting around thinking, if we only had this tournament where nations compete uh, <laughs> against each other, and obviously we're, we're, we're joking about the fact that the World Cup already already exists. So how do you see, well, how do you see that happen? Let's give the background there. The, the guy that came up with this idea for the UEFA Nations League five years ago was Johnny Infantino when he was UEFA General Secretary. So he's obviously now president of FIFA. This is his baby. So he's encouraging all the other federations to do the same. He wants there to be a CONCACAF Nations League, an African Nations League, et cetera. And his ultimate goal is to have this global Nations League. And the big development there is that Saudi Arabia, which is very jealous that Qatar is hosting the 2022 World Cup, they want to make a big splash too. So they're offering FIFA a ridiculous amount of money to sponsor this global Nations League. And I'm not sure what the format would be, but presumably the climactic matches would occur in Saudi Arabia. So there's enough money behind this that people think it's going to happen, and they're already debating the implications of it. So one thing people are talking about is this could marginalize the World Cup. There would be another big tournament that people would view as just as prestigious to win. How would you feel about that if we ever had a, a day when there's another international tournament that like competes with the World Cup for... Well, Johnny now in his new position might be thinking about it uh, in a little di a little differently uh, because it's one thing as the head of UEFA to kind of come up with something. It's another thing now when you're the head of FIFA having something that's going to compete with your your sacred uh, World Cup and a, and a World Cup that makes a tremendous amount of money. I, you know, I, I don't want to get, like I said, I don't want to get too much into the weeds when it, when it comes to these things. I, I like, I, I would, I, and I want to finish it up here. You had said that people... Generally, the, the reaction to the UEFA, uh, what are we calling it, UEFA? Nations League. Nations League, was positive. Right. Uh, so you have decided that while everybody thinks it's positive, you are taking a negative view. Correct. You, you, think, you think that this is, this is bad. If the people like it, Mossy, it's going to continue on. People, and I will say this, while those games were happening this weekend... I think that there was a added element of interest generated by the fact that it was part of this new tournament. Did everybody understand what the tournament was? No, not necessarily. But they recognized that this was something new, something unique. And so in previous versions or previous times where this didn't exist, I think the attention would have been less. Uh, and the curiosity factor was ratcheted up because of the fact that they did this. Let me ask you this, because I find the whole club-country dynamic fascinating here. Uh, there's an English journalist named Simon Coopers who wrote an 
article on ESPN a few days ago. He's all for the UEFA Nations League, the Global Nations League, all this stuff. And he posited the theory that all things being equal, people do care about their national teams more than their clubs. It doesn't seem that way because there's not uh, enough uh, meaningful international soccer. Uh, but if they were able to fill all the dead spots in the calendar with meaningful matches and you always felt like your national team was involved in something that was important and that, that would fundamentally alter the club versus country dynamic. And he, he said this is international soccer roaring back and he thinks it's a good thing. It's for the better of the game. Do you prefer sort of a constant yin-yang of club and international soccer or you're okay with like international soccer fading into the background for periods of the year and focusing on the club stuff and then only really caring every two years, every four years when there's a big tournament right around the corner? How, how do you feel about the whole club country dynamic? I look at it in terms of food. I look at it that your club affiliation, whether it's an actual affiliation with a club that you support or it's just a, a league that you like to watch, that is your that is your day, daily sustenance and nutrients and your daily diet. I look at international games as, you know, and so that's, that's what you eat at home, the food you make at home. I look at international games as when you go out to a restaurant, okay? And it, so it doesn't happen every single day, and that's what makes it special. But you need both to live, and both can be incredibly satisfying, but one comes much more consistently, uh, and there's much more of an understanding and expectation of what you're going to get as opposed to the uh, as opposed to the other. I would be, I, I, I don't meet a lot of people that say I don't really care about international soccer at all. So to Simon's point, maybe maybe that is the case, and it depends. It, it certainly depends where you are and what time of year and all that kind of stuff. But I think maybe he is right in that there is much more of an affinity for international soccer and for your team than. Um, than people realize, and maybe it's maybe it's changed over the years. Maybe it's increased over the years as we become more global, and there's you know, much more communication and understanding um, and interaction with the rest of the world. Uh, and so that that pride and that that nationalism maybe is ratcheted up even more. I don't know. Yeah, I, I prefer international soccer in small doses, like. Like, give me a chance to miss you so then when you play a really important game, it feels special. That's kind of my take on it. It's funny. That's your take in relationships, too, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I always hearken back to our former boss, John T. Whitehead. And I want to get this right because I said this wrong once on the podcast. He is an Englishman and a Sheffield Wednesday fan, and he has told me he would rather Sheffield Wednesday get promoted to the Premier League yep. than England win the World Cup. Yeah. I couldn't believe now, it when he said uh, it. It's, it's, <laughs> it. It blew my mind. But that, you know, that's, that, that's how he feels. Now... Of course, that was before this summer. And I can tell you because John T. Whitehead excited. was there. Yep. And I saw a grown man cry. I saw <laughs> a, a, a level of emotion and passion um, and a depth that I had not seen. So I think he talks a big game when it comes to uh, his, uh, his owls over there at Sheffield uh, Wednesday. But when his national team, in a moment that mattered, when the world was watching, when they did well... I think even he discovered or maybe rediscovered a pride that had been living dormant in him for, <laughs> for evidently a long time, and it emerged, and it was glorious to see. It, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart. All right, you got anything else? That is it. All right, we love you, Jonty. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where we answer your questions or respond to your uh, criticisms or just your uh, comments with the Ask Alexi hashtag. And we remind you, use that Ask Alexi hashtag over there on social media and send us your comments and your questions and your concerns and your criticisms if you want. And who knows, maybe in the future, like you're about to hear, David Mossy will read your comment or your question on future episodes of, this, uh, of the uh, State of the Union podcast. All right, what are the folks asking or saying today in the Ask Alexi segment? First up, at A. Bartelski, do you think Dempsey will get a farewell U.S. men's national team match? I think he will be offered the opportunity. I think he probably will refuse it. I don't think he should be even offered it. I don't believe that the U.S. men's national team, or any national team for that matter, should be a charity. And I know that sounds cold for someone who I will stand up and admit, and anybody listened to the podcast last week, this is one of the true greats of American soccer, a legend and forever will be a legend. But there's something different. We were talking uh, earlier in the, in the pod about uh, a national team versus club. And when I think about the national team 
and the honor and the privilege of representing your country and putting on that jersey and putting your hand over your heart and singing the national anthem and going to different places around the world and representing all of the people and all of the history and all the culture uh, that is the United States. I think that comes with a responsibility and that old saying about, you know, what's on the front is more important than the back. It, 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 it is true. And so I think when you, when you single somebody out and you give a farewell, I think there's opportunities that you can uh, use in the future to celebrate it. But I think the actual playing of the game, for example, when we talk about an, an international as a player, he's an international. It doesn't matter whether you have 100 caps or whether you stepped on the field for one minute. You are an international. And I love the fact that, you know, take, take uh, Kobe Jones or whoever that has 100 and whatever caps. From an international perspective and a recognition perspective, he is on the same level as somebody that stepped on the field for one minute. I love that part of international soccer. And I don't want to, in a strange way, dilute the privilege that it is to step on the field, even for one minute, by having a farewell game for a player that is being afforded the opportunity to step on the field for nothing more than what they have done in the past. And I know there's people that disagree with me. I don't think, I don't think it's right, whether it's Alana Donovan, whether it's a Clint Dempsey, uh, whether it's anybody. I think they will probably find a way to maybe offer that if that's something that he wants to do uh, in the future. But this is also a guy who is, hasn't just retired from the national team, he's retired from soccer. <laughs> so they better do it quick if they're going to do it. Uh, but I also think that I'm not sure Clint Dempsey will want to do that. That's kind of what I, what I love about him. There will be plenty of opportunities to fet Clint Dempsey. And once again, I'm not sure how many he will want to take part in, but we're going to we're going to celebrate the player and the person that Clint Dempsey is many, many different ways. I just don't think that a farewell game is the way to do it. Next up, at underscore soccer thoughts. Any updates on having a combined Copa America again? Is that something you'd support? Well, to go back to your, uh, we were talking about, I keep forgetting the name of it. Uh, Wave of Nations League. Wave of Nations League uh, rip that you had. Uh, I think everybody agreed that the, Copa Centenario, the combined Copa America in, played in the U.S. that involved the U.S. was a undeniable success, which means that Mossy probably is against anything like that ever happening again. I would love to have that happen again. I think that there was a recognition that this is something that they've hit upon. And because the Centenario aspect of it, <clears throat> it worked out well. Keep in mind, Copa America has always been this really strange tournament where it's not necessarily every four years. It's it's uh, and 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 I think they're looking for opportunities uh, uh, going forward. Will it happen again? I'm not sure if it will be a combined Copa America. I do think the U.S. will be part of Copa America. Uh, I hope that they're part part of Copa America because I thought it was just a great tournament. It was so so fun to see, and I hope that going forward, either there is a full on combined. Copa America, or the U.S. gets invited and participates in the Copa America. But the reason why it was great wasn't because the U.S. was participating, the team was participating. It was great because it was in the United States. So if there is a combined Copa America, that's great, but I want it in the United States because that's what made it special for me. If the United States plays in a Copa America and it's in I don't know, Venezuela or Chile or wherever it ends up being, eh, eh. Would you want it? Well, you don't know me as well as you think because I am all for this, but I'm going to... <laughs> you zig uh, and you zag, my friend. No, 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 no. I'm going to double down on my less international soccer. I want this instead of the Copa America or the Gold Cup. I want this to be the big regional tournament for this part of the world. Every four years, it should be the summer directly in between two World Cups. And I want the summer after World Cup and the summer before World Cup to be completely open and, and no international tournaments so players can... Especially the, the summer before the, the World yeah. Cup, be, be rested. And, and I'm all about rest and relaxation. I know. I'm you're saying. really concerned with the, I'm, with the I'm, health I'm, and the well-being of these players. I'm, I'm for less soccer. Right. I, I, I actually don't really like this sport. I, I kind of— but, but so you, ironically, subscribe to the NFL theory where less is more, right? Yeah. You, you, you would you think by doing that, you would make the games that much more important— and the world that already tunes in, more of the world would tune in because of the scarcity. That's what you're saying. 
Absolutely. Wow. So, so David Mossy believes that the NFL is doing it right and the greatest thing in the world, and that we should take all of our soccer knowledge and history in the past and throw it out and follow what uh, the American League, that is the National Football League, is doing, right? Well, you know, you're suddenly a big NFL fan. A lot of tweets this weekend from you. I've been following it. I uh, uh, Just not to digress, but I will here. I learned this week that, let's see, this guy Khalil, Khalil, what's his last name? Uh, Mac. Khalil Mack. Mac. Mac. Khalil Mack. I've learned about him. I learned that the quarterback for the, uh, the Packers of Green Bay is dating uh, a, a race car driver. It's Aaron Rodgers and Danica Patrick. Got it. Okay. I learned that there's a guy named Julio that plays for the Falcons of Atlanta, and you should throw the ball to him. Okay. I watched this game on Thursday night, and the guy's so big, and he's so good, and the quarterback for the, for the Falcons of Atlanta, at the end of the game, he could have won the game, and he threw it. He didn't throw it anywhere near the guy. You just kind of throw it up there and let the guy go get the ball. So that's, that's what uh, I learned from this week. But I'm trying to get into a little bit more of the NFL. I'm, I'm getting there. I, you know, the, um, oh, the, uh, the quarterback, by the way, that dates the race car driver. You don't spell his name R-O-G-E-R-S. It's R-O-D-G-E-R-S. You so already, these are the things. It's you know, baby steps. You already know more about this kind of football than the other one. But, uh, <laughs> oh, the other thing I learned, and I looked it up uh, on my machine, is that the... Oakland Raiders, who everyone was talking about, everyone was screaming, yelling about the Oakland Raiders because they, oh, they let the, they the traded they let Mac, yeah. Mac go yeah, yeah. to the other team. Right. That do you know that the Oakland Raiders could have had Mr. Rogers because they picked before Green Bay, but nobody was talking about that. Nobody was all over uh, North Turner. Well, a host of teams made that mistake. Rogers well, got picked saying, twenty something. I'm in the just draft. saying they're killing John Gruden because he, uh, <laughs> because he traded uh, Mick. Do Mac? you think uh, Alex Dowd and Francis Silver enjoying this portion of the podcast? They're loving. Are people out there going, "What did I tune in I, for?" I, less less NFL. I'm, I'm dying. And when to I give, say less, no NFL. I'm right? dying okay. to give my thoughts on Serena Williams, but I think Francis would punch me in the face <laughs> if I told you what I really thought. Well, about we could do a whole the events of this. All weekend. right, move on. What else do we got? All right, one more. Ask Alexi. At Seku Go Heels, I mm-hmm. think that's it. Uh, who is your choice for U.S. men's national team manager and why? John Gruden. Okay, so we talked a lot about this uh, in New Jersey this week uh, for the uh, U.S.-Brazil game. And we had Ernie Stewart on, and he was talking about, you know, he's gonna, he'd rather take the time and make sure that this is the, the appropriate pick. You know, if, and I think I've said this before on the pod, if, if it's all, all signs are pointing to someone like Greg Berhalter. I got no problem with Greg Berhalter. I think he's, I think he's smart. I think he's capable. I think he's qualified. I think he'll do a good job. I think he work, will work well with Ernie Stewart. And so I have no problem with, with him. Uh, if it's Peter Vermes, I have, I have no problem. Ernie Stewart did, in his roundtable, talk about how he wants the next coach of the U.S. men's national team to speak English and understand English. And I think when that came out, people, some people were angry, some people were, that's, that's normal. We all know that no World Cup has ever been won by a team with a coach, uh, uh, with a foreign coach, right? Correct. So when I look at this national team, I don't think it's ridiculous, even the fact that we are the United States and even the fact that we are a, a, a country and a culture that speaks so many different, uh, different language, to have a because he's, he's, Ernie Stewart has done this template of this is what he wants for the team, to talk uh, about wanting a coach that speaks English, that understands English, I think that that's a necessity, and I think that that's completely reasonable to, to expect your coach understands the language that is predominant in the country that, uh, that you are coaching. That also doesn't mean that that coach has to be American, that, that coach doesn't have to be domestic or anything like that. It just has to have an understanding of the English language um, because there's enough hurdles that you're going to have to try to get over when you're the coach of the, uh, the national team. So uh, that's a long way uh, of me saying I have no problem if it is Greg Berhalter. That is it. Okay. Uh, once again, use that hashtag AskLexi and uh, we will hopefully in the future read some of those comments and questions on our Ask Alexi segment. All right, moving on. The Back Three. 
All right, time for the back three. When we look at some big stories or some games or some moments out there. Mossy, what do we got in our back three this week? All right, first up, you alluded to this last week, and our producer, Alex Dowd, uh, hasn't shut up about it all week, so I knew this would find its way into this week's rundown. He very much wants your top 10 all-time U.S. men's national team players. Okay, so we were talking about this last week, and then I had to actually go back. And it was completely just off the cuff, and then I had to go back and start thinking about it, and it gets, it gets difficult. It gets difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, because uh, there's, there's a lot of quality, and... What the criteria is, uh, just so you know, uh, as I said last week, we are taking out goalkeepers, all right? Uh, goalkeepers are, are great. They are a necessary evil. They are a different breed. I think we all <laughs> recognize that. But their position, they can only play one position on the field, and their position is so unique and so different, uh, notwithstanding the fact that goalkeepers play with their feet now much more than they did in the past, and it's actually important to have goalkeepers to play with the feet, but the position in itself is just so unique and different that we said, let's take out goalkeepers. And when you do that for a U.S. men's national team, you're taking out some real quality. So maybe we'll do a goalkeeper top 10 uh, later on. But we're taking out goalkeepers. So these are just field players uh, that we have there. All right, here it goes. And this is my top 10. Please send us your top 10 uh, going forward, because I guarantee... After I read you my top 10, there are going to be people that completely disagree, some that disagree a little, maybe one or two that agree, uh, and, and some that maybe don't disagree in terms of the names, but disagree in terms of the order. So top 10, starting from 10 and going down to number one. Number 10, Josie Altador. Number nine, Eddie Pope. Number eight, Michael Bradley. Number seven, Brian McBride. Number six, Kobe Jones. Number five, Claudio Reyna. Number four, Eric Winalda. Yeah! Number three, Clint Dempsey. Number two, Tab Ramos. And number one, Landon Donovan. So that is my top 10. I think where some questions, comments, concerns are going to come up is where Clint Dempsey is, because there's a lot of people that put him number one. There's a lot of people that put him number two. I do have Tab Ramos number two. I've talked about Tab Ramos before on the pod. I think he is a he was a man out of time uh, in terms of how good he was. And the fact that people still put him up there is a testament to how good he was. Because if he was playing today, I think you would look at him in the same way that we look at a Christian Pulisic in terms of uh, a young phenom with incredible potential and talent. But there was times where he was slumming it with us playing uh, alongside the likes of myself and others. Uh, the other part was I, I took myself out of the equation. I put myself with the goalkeepers, all right? Because I would be way up there. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that out. So, so keep in mind that these are some of the names that, that are not in my top ten. Uh, in no particular order, Marcelo Balboa, John Harks, Demarcus Beasley, Steve Cherundolo, uh, Frankie Hayda, Carlos Bocanega, Hugo Perez, Bruce Murray, Ernie Stewart. Clint Mathis, these types of players. And there's plenty, plenty more. So as I said before, please send us uh, your your top 10 uh, and what you, you feel is right. I put this out right before we came on to record this pod, and I put it out to a couple of people here, and I'm going to read a couple of uh, top 10s. My good friend Stuart Holden sent me his top 10, and he had number 10 was Bradley, 9 Bocanegra, 8 Winalda, 7 Ramos, 6 Torundolo, 5 McBride, 4 Beasley, three Reyna, two Landon, and one Clint. So he's got Landon uh, at two and Clint at, at number one. Uh, the other person that I uh, reached out to was good friend uh, and good friend of the show, uh, Rob Stone. He said that his top 10 was, and I think he was messing with me. He said, number 10, Lawless. All right, got to love Rob Stone. Uh, number nine, Dooley. Number eight, Eddie Pope. Uh, number seven, Brian McBride. Number six, Winalda. Number five, Harks. Number four, Dempsey. Number three, Ramos. Number two, Reyna. And number one, Donovan. So he doesn't have Dempsey until four. So everybody's going to disagree on this, and that's part of the, the, the fun of this. So give us your top ten. I don't suppose you have a top ten, do you? I'd have to think about it, okay, which I well, haven't. You think about it. Uh, uh, the only comment I'll make is uh, not the first time this year that Stu Holden has... Uh, snubbed Eric Winalda or placed him lower in a list of people than Eric Winalda would like to have been placed. Well, so, so here's, the, here's the thing. When I'm talking myself or, or Stuart Holden or Rob Stone or any of us that have been involved and been around these people, we, we develop personal relationships. Some of them, uh, you know, there's professional relationships. Some of them we know for a long time. Some of them that we played with and all that kind of stuff. So ultimately, this is all about how you feel 
this player is. And you like to think that you can divorce yourself, but you can't because we're human beings. And it's going to be reflected in our top 10. But for those of you that out there that uh, have a few minutes and want to jot that down, let, let, let me know. Let me know where I messed up. Let me know who you think should be there. And also, when you're doing this, do your top 10, but also have another batch in there that don't get into your top 10. And you will see this gets, this gets kind of diff, uh, difficult. I was, I was moving people in and out, and then I said, well, you know, that guy's going to guy's gonna read this, and then he's going to think I'm, think I'm a jerk for not including him here. So that's where the, the personal part of it comes down. But I, I tried to be as unbiased as I possibly could. I, had, I tried to be as unbaggaged as I possibly could or... I possibly could reckon with the with the understanding that once again I am a human being and therefore I bring all of my biases and 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 baggage and preconceived notions when it comes to all of these uh, players. I'll say this: if there's any interest in this on Twitter, I will do a top ten Brazilian players of all time. But only if people on Twitter enough people ask me about it, I will do it. Moving on, I know you have uh, always very strong opinions on team names and, and, mm. and crests and things of that sort. So David Beckham's MLS franchise yep. will be called Inter-Miami. Your thoughts? Okay, so I am. Uh, there are people that you know love stadium porn. Uh, I, I love <laughs> logo porn. Uh, so I, I am a sucker for this. I was involved in the rebranding of the Galaxy way back when, and it's one of my favorite and most proud moments, considering there weren't a whole lot on the field to be proud of. Uh, but I think we, we did a good job back then. So I, I am always a geek for, for this type of stuff. So as you mentioned, David Beckham's team down there in Miami uh, came out with a team name and a team crest. We call it crest, logo, brand, whatever you want to call it. And they are calling themselves Club Internacional de Football. Okay. And if you, if you pull up the crest, I have it in front of me. You can find it online right now because it's official. It's uh, a round crest, so all of these things matter. It's a round crest with a shield in it. It has the, uh, the, the date that it will be coming into existence. Uh, it has Miami, and it has two birds back and forth that actually, if you look at it, can complete an M. And anytime these things come out, they have this, this incredible thing that they attach to it that explains every single detail. And this line is this, and this line is this. The color scheme is black and pink. Yes, pink. Okay, so what's good about it? The pink. This team can own pink. There is no team in uh, the United States when it comes to Major League Soccer that uh, has pink. I hope that they play up the pink part of it. I think that that, that can be huge and, and very, very important going forward. The two birds, which are herons, for everybody that's out there, we've come to the... Uh, not come to the conclusion. They told us that they are herons. There was questions as to whether they were flamingos or regrets and all that kind of stuff. I love the uh, the imagery of the two birds, and I think they can really use that. I'm going to call them the herons. So it's the Miami herons for me. The uh, the inter international. I'm not buying it. I'm not calling them inter. Okay. Most people are going to call them Miami anyway. I'm not calling them inter. And I get what they're doing. Once again, this is the gate rate, the gateway to uh, to South America. Uh, this is a recognition, we've talked about this before, of teams that, that they want to be global brands and they have to uh, associate themselves at times with tradition and what, is, what passes for authenticity. That's what they tried to do. I'm not buying the international. I'm not buying football. And especially I'm not buying football, F-U-T-B-O-L. I get it. I understand why they're doing it. I don't think that football, regardless of how it's spelled, should be a part of it. So I'm not buying uh, that. As I said, the inner crest, I love it. The colors, I love it. If I'm going to get really, really geeky about it, I think it doesn't pop as much because it's a little bit busy. And I think the, the, the lines that they have are so thin that they are going to disappear from afar. So much so that somebody took the inner crest, which is on a shield of this circle, out and put it on a hat and it looked so much better with just the birds, just the badge, and just the word Miami over it. I loved that. So all the other stuff I can, I can do without, but on a whole, I would give it a, a B, a solid B. And ultimately, once again, for the, the color pink, I hope that that's what they play on because I think that will really resonate, not just internally and uh, in, in Miami, but around the, uh, the league and around the country and ultimately around the world. All right, moving on. <laughs> 
You won't you won't have seen it, but David Mossy just rolled his eyes. He did not like that segment at all. I'm not a fan of stadium porn, so that segment wasn't for <laughs> right. Me. I know you're just a fan of regular porn. I understand. I understand that. I, I prefer stadium, or uh, in this case. Logo porn. Uh, we'll, we'll end on this. You mentioned you're, you're headed. We're taping this on a Monday. You're off to Nashville. Yes. Does that mean we're not getting lunch after this podcast? No, I'm not leaving right now. Okay. You, you're off to Nashville. The U.S. plays a friendly against Mexico. Yep. I have some thoughts on Mexico, which I'll share. But first, uh, U.S., I mean, is there any player that didn't start the other night you'd like to see start this game or that played well the other night? You want to see if they can build on that performance? Give me your overall thought on the U.S. here against Mexico. Well, you, you know my form is fallacy theory. I've, I've, uh, I've said that over the years. However, when you got a guy like Jossie Zardes, who is starting every game, scoring goals, playing in a position where he is obviously very comfortable, and he didn't start against Brazil came on later in the game. It'd be nice to play him up there, but it doesn't always translate like that. Uh, that, would, uh, that would be interesting. We know that John Brooks has gone home, so he will not be available for this team going forward. I didn't think that Robinson was particularly good on that left, uh, left back position. Now, he came up against Douglas Costa, and <laughs> the guy put on a show, but he torched him throughout the game. Uh, I didn't think Julian Green was particularly good. I didn't think, didn't think Paul Ariola was particularly good. Uh, I thought that Matt Miazga and uh, Brooks were good. I thought that Yedlin's solid over there on the left-hand side. I think Zach Stefan is the uh, is the number one goalkeeper. But with this caveat, you know, Brad Guzan is still waiting in the wings. And going all the way back to my uh, State of the Union, maybe Brad Guzan is one of those players that continues on from a experience standpoint, a guy that's going to be good for the locker room, a guy that will help out and lead. But but you got to get him to wrap his mind around the fact that he's not number one. And I, I'm not sure that he has done that after having, after you know, buying his time for so long behind uh, Tim Howard. But ultimately, this is a game against Mexico. And this is our big rival. And that's why you watch this game, regardless of who is playing. Both teams coming off of losses, both teams into this new cycle, both teams still without a coach, a full-time uh, real coach. So we'll see what happens. The difference there is that the Mexico interim coach, uh, Rio de Janeiro native Ricardo Tuco Ferretti, is a guy that many Mexico fans would love to see be the permanent coach. He's so coach. smart, though. Yeah, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> and he'll, he'll coach this game as he did the CONCACAF Cup uh, we covered at the yep. Rose Bowl in 2015 where Mexico won. Yeah, and they're also going with a youngish, understrength roster. As you mentioned, they got thumped by Uruguay the other night, and, and they, they sent Irving Lozano and Eric Gutierrez away after that game, so it's even weaker than a squad that lost 4-1 to Uruguay. A uh, big point of interest for me, I have to say, Jonathan Gonzalez might start this game. We made such a big fuss about him picking Mexico over the U.S., so that would be kind of interesting. They have some other young guys they want to take a look at. And then you've also got Jonathan Dos Santos in there, Raul Jimenez. So there are some names that should make for a fun game. This actually should be a better game than the Brazil game because you're going to have a lot of young, hungry guys on both sides looking to prove themselves. There's not going to be any kind of Neymars and Coutinho's that kind of have this air of like, this this is above me and, you know, just sort of in second gear, like you said. So I'm actually looking forward to this game. I think U.S.-Mexico is always fun, and this one will be as well. You were mentioning who uh, I would like to see play. And I was thinking back the other day about the, the concept of um, partners on the field and consistency. And you say that you want less international soccer. And if that becomes the case, then maybe this, this phenomenon will become much more important. If you remember back uh, to the great Italian teams, oftentimes their defense was populated by AC Milan's back three, back four, depending on who, who was playing. So there was already an understanding and a recognition of how to play, and it just transferred onto the national team. And so when I look at a guy like Tim Parker and Aaron Long, who now are playing at the Red Bulls together, it intrigues me. The whole concept intrigues me, whether it involves them or not. To find a team that has U.S. men's national team eligible players playing in tandems or trios or quads, depending on where it is on the field, that is playing well and using that coordination and that understanding that has developed over time to benefit the national team. Now, AC Milan at that time was one of the great teams in the world, okay? So it was maybe a little bit easier to, to transfer that back four, that back three over to the national team and use that to their advantage. But I think there's something to be said and something maybe interesting if we find those combinations out there 
that are nurtured and fostered in a club setting and to be able to use them from a national team perspective. And if we don't, at least having some consistency with the people. And when, once again, John Brooks is gone, so that back four is automatically is going to be changed up. Uh, and I don't know if Matt Miazga is going to continue on or not. So I don't know who's going to play against Mexico, but ultimately when it's Mexico, whether it's playing a game uh, of soccer or whether it's playing a game of cards or anything else, you want to beat Mexico when you're playing Mexico. Well, and there are more recent examples of what you just said. I mean, Spain 2010 was loads of Barcelona players, Germany 2014, loads of Bayern players, Brazil center back pairing the other night, Thiago Silva and Marquinhos played together at PSG. So yeah, I think anytime you can do that, there's always a benefit national team to have guys. But, that you, play would, but you would have to have a national team coach who valued MLS players uh, because I, I don't, I mean, are there any players out there or any teams out there in the world that have multiple U.S. players playing together on that team, right? Right. You could have a, a Josh Sargent, Aaron Johansson strike pairing. You could uh, do that. You could definitely do that. So I'm all, I'm all for it. But it's, and it's a little difficult when you are bringing, like as I said, from 80s, 90s uh, AC Milan or 90s aughts Barcelona and Real Madrid together. So, all right, what else? Anything else? That is it. That is it. Our uh, one big thing from today's podcast. This is how we uh, always end our podcast. And it's uh, breaking news. Our, uh, our good friend Taylor Twelman over there at ESPN has reported, and by the time you listen to it, it may, it may be official, that uh, Ziggy Schmidt, the head coach of the Los Angeles Galaxy, has stepped down. For those that have been following, uh, it has been an erratic and at times dismal year for the Los Angeles Galaxy. Why is that interesting? Well, the Los Angeles Galaxy, a uh, arguably the first um, and arguably one of the major and certainly the super club when it comes to Major League Soccer, will now have gone through their second year. Uh, there's a good chance they're not going to make the playoffs, where they don't make the playoffs and where it just has not gone well. Uh, you have to go back to uh, the early two or the early aughts uh, or the mid aughts to find a time where it didn't go well. And yes, that was overseen by yours truly back then with the uh, Los Angeles Galaxy. So why why is this interesting to me? Well, when we talk about the Los Angeles Galaxy, one of the reasons why the Los Angeles Galaxy is popular is because of the big names they sign, because of the money they spend, and obviously because of David Beckham. There are as many people that hate the Galaxy as love the Galaxy, and that, for me, is the definition of, this, uh, of a super club. When it comes to this year, uh, and we all live here in Los Angeles, and just because you don't doesn't mean you can't see it from the outside or, or, or relate to it. LAFC came into this market, and LAFC came in big. Brand new stadium, incredible ownership group. They spent a lot of money on their on their team. They hired Bob Bradley, and it has gone by any estimation uh, great. And they deserve a tremendous amount of credit. What I had hoped was going to happen was this was going to light a fire under the Los Angeles Galaxy. That was going to be good for both teams. That was going to be good for the city, and that was going to be going to be good for the league. But to my dismay, that hasn't happened. And look, I, I understand the best laid plans and all that kind of stuff. But this is not good. This is not good for the Los Angeles Galaxy. It's not good for Los Angeles. And it's not good uh, for Major League Soccer. Ziggy Schmidt, uh, I've known him for a long, long time. I, I wish him well. This has not gone well. And uh, that he is stepping down, I don't think should be any surprise, given the amount of money that they have spent, but it has not worked out, especially defensively. Zlatan coming in maybe wasn't something that Ziggy Schmidt had in mind or ultimately wanted, but when Zlatan comes into you uh, and, and is offered to you, especially not even as a designated player and as a, at a reduced rate, you take it. And for all the problems it might have caused for, uh, in terms of the plans that they had, the dude has brought it. The dude has scored goals. Their problem is that everybody else hasn't picked up the slack. And the Los Angeles Galaxy right now is in danger, not of just not making the playoffs, not of just having a poor season, but they are in danger of losing Los Angeles and losing that moniker of being the MLS Super Club. And that's a problem for them. And that they have let that happen, that's disappointing. It's not, it's not on purpose. It's not by design. But that's not a good thing for them. And I know I'm being a little bit local here because I know there's people out there that are listening that don't care about the Los Angeles Galaxy or 
they are enjoying this and they are reveling in the problems that the Los Angeles Galaxy are, are having. All of that is to say we talk so much about competition and we were talking earlier in the podcast about doing things to stoke the fire and to get that type of competition because that's what we want to do. This is one more moment where the LA Galaxy has got to get it right going forward. Who they name now as a new coach, who they bring back, more importantly, who they don't bring back. And do they get it together starting next year if they don't make the playoffs this year? This is, this is going to be fun to watch, whether you're a neutral, or even with your Los Angeles Galaxy, because this is, this is real. This is good pressure. And they failed the initial quest to, be, to compete with uh, LAFC. And I fear that if they don't change things and radically change things going forward, uh, they are in danger, as I said, of losing Los Angeles. And that would be a shame for a team that, from a personal perspective, means, uh, means so much to me. All right. Thank you very much for tuning in. David, thank you. Anything uh, before we go? No, that's it. We will be back again next week with more soccer talk. As always, please let us know what you like, what you dislike, questions, comments, concerns. Hit us up on Twitter on Facebook, on all the different social media. Use that uh, hashtag AskAlexi uh, if you're uh, going to send us anything, and we'll use as much uh, as we possibly can. And even sometimes we integrate stuff indirectly that, uh, that you say. So you have a voice uh, in, in this show. Have a wonderful week watching whatever soccer you are going to watch. There's still plenty of international soccer, and then we're back to club soccer uh, this weekend. I will be uh, in... Nashville, Tennessee, watching the United States play against Mexico. And then I'll be back working Bundesliga this weekend. Bundesliga returns. We are showing Werder Bremen. We talked earlier about uh, Josh, Josh Sargent, who did not get called into the national team because uh, there is a belief that he is being prepped for uh, at least to be involved going forward with the first team. Uh, at Werder Bremen, which will be wonderful news. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, we are broadcasting the Werder Bremen uh, game this weekend, right? Correct, against Nuremberg. Against Nuremberg. So plenty of reasons to watch the, the Bundesliga, certainly with all the American players that are playing in the Bundesliga. I'll be working that, so we'll be up early bringing that to you, but there's also so much soccer going on, uh, almost too much soccer. And condolences to Raider Nation. All right, we will see you next time. And as always, size the day. <laughs>